Good morning, Redemption. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here, and I'll be reading this morning's passage to you. And it's from Genesis chapter 15, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know what I shall, that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in halves, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, to, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Stephanie. Any passage with a lot of weird names, we're just going to have you read those, okay? Two weeks in a row. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, we're so thankful. Um, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you reveal yourself through it. And Lord, I, I just ask that today as we have various uncertainties, as there are <clears throat> innumerable items in our minds that may 
unsettle us or cause us to doubt your promises or to doubt your goodness or to doubt your faithfulness. I pray that all of these uncertainties would literally melt away um, under the crushing weight of your awe-inspiring majesty. Help us to see so much of you in these words. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uncertainty is all around us. I honestly don't want or need to spend much time convincing ourselves of this. I think, um, I mean, just go to the internet or look at any social media outlet or just see that all the projected certainty out there, there's just enough contradictory claims to make um, it very true that very little is actually certain in life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that uncertainty tends to eat away at every aspect of our lives. Indeed, it's as if we're plagued by uncertainty right down to our very souls. We're plagued by the nagging questions. Will everything turn out okay? Will God pull through for me? Will he keep his promises to me? Can God pull through for me when I'm faced with so many uncertainties? And I think it's because of this all too common and all too human uncertainty that our hearts are primed to receive the claim of Genesis 15 today. This passage should shine like a beacon into the darkness of our hearts, our faint and uncertain hearts, so tempted to doubt God's goodness. This passage, I'm convinced, is written primarily as a reassurance, a powerful reassurance. And I really do want us to catch this today because I just think we need it. And to that end, I think we're going to see that the claim of Genesis 15 is best seen if we have some interpretational guidelines in place. So specifically, what I mean is that we should keep the original audience of the passage in mind as we're reading this. And it's not an audience we can't identify with. I mean, far from it. Um, but we do need to keep in mind that the, this, the context of the intended audience to get the best idea of what the author is trying to get done. Because you see, we as Christians living in present-day COVID-ridden and politically riled America, we aren't the only people in history who need reassurance. As it turns out, the nation of Israel, the original intended audience of the book of Genesis, they were hearing this story of Abram for the first time in a particular season of uncertainty themselves. At the time that this book was written, this was a people who were waiting. They were wandering. They lived outside of their promised land, scared to enter it because they thought their enemies were too strong for them. In other words, there was still work for them to be done. They still had things to do to obey God, but they lacked the faith and the heart to finish that work. This was a nation that God had shown up mightily for again and again, and what was probably their most consistent attribute? uncertainty, complaining, compromising, fear, anxiety. They often stubbornly refused to believe that God would or perhaps even could deliver on his promises to them. They saw the success of their relationship with God as uncertain. 
And that uncertainty led them to compromise, to be faithless and thankless to God again and again. Ultimately, it led to them wandering around in the wilderness outside the promised land for an entire generation. So now, as they're about to go back in, as they have another opportunity to believe God's promise and walk by faith, not by sight, they need reassurance. They need certainty. And I believe the author of Genesis intends to use this passage, this development in Abram's story, as a way to give them that reassurance. So here's the plan this morning. We're going to keep Israel's context as the original audience in mind. We're going to keep an eye on the two characters in this story, Abram and God. Because I think the claim of the passage is best seen when we trace what's happening, what's developing between these two characters. Specifically, we're going to look at what each character says and what each character does. So let's start with Abram, the character of uncertainty. Our passage begins with three words of context after these things, which of course generally refers to the entire Genesis narrative before, but more specifically, it refers to the events that just took place in chapter 14. And if you remember from last week, Abram has just taken a small-ish contingent of trained men, some allied forces, and he's defeated the armies of multiple allied kingdoms, essentially winning a complicated, large-scale war between all the major powers of the entire region with just this small group of people. In a very real sense, Abram, this sojourner to the land, this guy who has only recently moved off from a far or moved from a far off country, this virtual nobody, an outsider to the region, has rocked the boat. And he's made very powerful people very angry and has put himself at risk of retaliation. In other words, his future in the land is uncertain. So we, as we look at Abram, our first character, we get a picture of uncertainty right away. But there's more. Let's look at what Abram says in the passage. So keep your Bibles open here as we go through. Verse 2, what does Abram say? Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Verse 3, behold, you have given me no offspring. And the only other time Abram speaks in this passage is in verse 8. When he says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I'll possess it? Do you hear the uncertainty highlighted? If we pay attention to what Abram says in this passage, we, we see more than a hint of exasperation, of frustration. You see, to Abram, his entire relationship with God so far is based off of a promise that has two parts to it, descendants and land. And from his point of view, he left everything behind to follow God for this promise. He left certainty, choosing by faith to follow God. But now, years later, the success of that promise is looking pretty grim. He still has no kids, so the descendants' half of the promise is uncertain. And he just riled up the raging nations currently occupying the land he's supposed to be in, so that part of the promise looks pretty daunting, too. Abram's role as a character in the story is to highlight how we as humans are quickly tempted to doubt God's faithfulness when things aren't working according to our own timeline or will. We quickly start to doubt God's promises. And Israel, as they're hearing this story, they were literally repeating the same exact behavior of heart 
They, just like Abram, were getting frustrated with God's timing and fulfilling his promises. And in that frustration, they were quick to disbelieve the faithfulness of God. But in contrast, let's look at what God says. Verse 1, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 4, your very own son shall be your heir. Verse 5, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs. Verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Verse 18, to your offspring I give this land. Do you hear any uncertainty at all in the word of the Lord? In response to Abram's current political uncertainty, God says, fear not, I'm your shield. In response to Abram's uncertainty in the descendants part of God's promise, God says, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. In response to Abram's uncertainty that he'll possess the land that was promised, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to give you this land. In short, God responds to Abram's cries of uncertainty with no for certain. God reassures Abram that he does indeed remember his promise and he will fulfill it. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? So let's look at what Abram does in this passage next. <clears throat> Remarkably, it's not much. That's the point. Verse 6, this is what he does. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 10 through 11, Abram obeys God's command to bring sacrificial animals for the covenant ritual. He prepares the ritual. Verse 12, he gets put to sleep and enveloped in a strange darkness. And then through the rest of the passage, he simply listens to God speak and watches God work. Now let's contrast that with what God does. God reveals himself to Abram, certainly not insignificant. God reiterates his promise of descendants, reiterates his promise of land to Abram. God gives Abram a vision of the night sky that helps Abram see more clearly how big God is, how capable he is to do as he pleases. God sees that Abram has a development of belief, what we would call faith, and he counts that belief as righteousness. And then at the climax, God comes down from heaven and develops his relationship with Abram by enshrining it in a covenant. Do you see the contrast? This passage is far more about God than it is about Abram. And we have to see that. The author of Genesis is showing us that only one of these characters is faithful enough and powerful enough to make this relationship between them succeed. And it's not Abram. Next, I want to highlight two specific developments in the relationship between Abram and God that we see in this narrative. And first, I, I do want to highlight again verse 6, 
And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. This is an important development. The author of Genesis waits three and a half chapters into the whole story of Abram to make this remark for a reason. While there has been faith exhibited by Abram previously, something about Abram's belief in God in this context is fundamentally profoundly meaningful. And here's what I think the author's trying to communicate. Abram's belief in God is advanced. It's matured in response to God's work in developing their relationship. In other words, God's reassurance of Abram worked. He was lacking belief, then God intervened, and now there's belief again. Belief of a kind that leads to covenant relationship. But, and this is important, it's not like Abram's belief is now perfect. Yes, there's been a development. There's been such a significant development that God, the maker of the human heart, the knower of the human heart, sees it and responds to it. That's all true. And that development is attributable to God's intervention. And it isn't yet perfected. There's still more belief needed. There's still some uncertainty left, which is why we need the second major development in this text. We need the establishment of the covenant relationship between Abram and God. So now, I just want to admit, this is a strange ritual. Uh, It's not just strange because we're modern listeners, and we don't often run around killing animals and laying their halves across each other and walking through sticky blood. Even to the original audience, even to ancient Israel, who knew of these covenant rituals, they likely saw them enacted, likely participated in them. Even to them, this particular ritual would be strange. When scholars debate the intricacies of the symbolism of each aspect of this specific ritual, and I I can't tell you all those intricacies. I spend more time in medicine than I do in those debates. Uh, What I can tell you, though, with help from Drs. Stephen Willem and Peter Gentry in their book called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, is that even within the context of ancient Near Eastern customs, this ritual is even still a bit strange. You see, the point of these covenant rituals was to establish a deep and lasting commitment to a relationship. When two parties performed this ritual, they were essentially saying, may I be like the animals that we just cut apart if I should cause this relationship to fail. So just let ancient history kind of be what it is this morning and see that the author is trying to use somewhat common imagery and custom for the time to show how God goes about a covenant-making ritual differently than was typically done. You see, in a covenant ritual like this, the typical trend was that both parties walk through the animals. Both parties get themselves bloody. Both parties invite a terrible curse upon themselves should the relationship fail. But does that happen in Genesis 15? Does Abram walk through those animals? No. A deep sleep comes upon Abram. A terrible darkness falls upon Abram. And the fact that Abram is rendered unable to complete the ritual is significant. The whole event becomes even more strange because God essentially takes over. 
And we know that Abram was willing to walk through the animals since he gathered them, he sacrificed them, he spent a good deal of time chasing away the carrion birds from the carcasses. But however willing he may have been, it's notable that a deep sleep fell upon him. It's important that a profound darkness came upon him. It's essential that a half a millennium spanning prophecy is uttered with astonishing clarity, certainty, piercing the darkness of uncertainty. And it's fundamental to the overall storyline of the Bible to see that God, in the form of a smoking firepot and flaming torch, walks alone through the animal halves. God alone invites upon himself a curse should either member of the covenant prove unfaithful. In other words, God alone proclaims himself responsible for the success of this covenant relationship. Well, think of how Israel would be feeling as they heard this. They would have just heard their history clearly articulated hundreds of years before it happened. They would be floored by the scope and the detail of God's plan for their lives, as if he's this master tactician, this awe-inspiring master and author of every event of their history. And they would have much more intuitively than us grasped the meaning of this one-sided covenant. And if they were truly listening, they would, they would have been incredibly reassured that the same God who spoke the world into being, the same God who called Abram out of certainty into a land of uncertainty based on a very certain promise, that same God against who all odds has kept Abram in relationship through the years, moved the promise toward completion, that same awe-inspiring God who made the vastness of the night sky, who has preordained every aspect of this nation's history, that God walked through the animal halves alone to make certain the outcome of the relationship. In other words, if Israel was really listening and paying attention to the claim of this text, they'd see this. The success of covenant relationship with God is totally dependent on him. You see, what the author of Genesis is trying to get done here is this. He's trying to reassure the people of Israel that God will fulfill his promise. He will give them the land of Canaan. The author of this passage wants Israel to see God drawing Abram deeper into relationship to him, revealing the scope of his awe-inspiring hundreds of years encompassing vision and plan to cause Abram to be a blessing and to see that this relationship that God creates with Abram is all they need to get the work done that they have not yet done. Israel should hear this story and fear not for God is their shield. Israel should hear the story and be struck silent by the incomprehensible scope of God's plan as vast as the stars are in the sky. And Israel should walk confidently into the land promised them, all because God is the only one who walked through those animal halves. So it's up to God and God alone to fulfill the covenant. Israel's meant to hear the story and exchange all of that uncertainty they felt for certainty, not in their own strength. That's silly, but in God's strength to fulfill his promise. So the call to action for Israel is the same as it is in the entire Old Testament. The call to action for Israel is to have faith in God, to believe God, to take him at his word. And they're meant to approach the work that they still have yet to do with belief in God, and then they're supposed to go do it with certainty. Why? 
because the success of covenant relationship with God depends totally on God. And church, this passage should have a similar outcome for us today, because just like Israel, there's work for us still to be done. We aren't yet in the new heavens and the new earth. So just like them, we should use this passage to reassure us. We should use this passage to pump us up, to give our hearts the courage that we need to believe God in faith and then go do that work. In other words, we need to identify the things that give us uncertainty in the promise of God and then use this claim of Genesis 15 to preach to our hearts and cause them to let go of that uncertainty, choosing instead to have certainty in God. So let me show you what I mean. Let's start with this question. What, what circumstances in your life cause you to be spiritually uncertain? Taking a cue from Abram's story, let's start here, when there's uncertainty in the land. Abram was feeling the squeeze in the land of promise because of political turmoil he just inserted himself into. And friends, if you haven't noticed, there's some political turmoil today here in our land. And as one of your pastors, I do have to ask this. Is that political turmoil causing you uncertainty? And is that uncertainty growing? Is it feeding off of the news and the ups and downs of the pandemic? Feeding on the comments of social media? And could it be that this uncertainty is having spiritual ramifications in your life? Are you starting to doubt God's goodness, his faithfulness, because the ongoing uncertainty in our land? Conservative circles or progressive circles, I don't really care. If there's a political situation going on that gets you so riled up that your eyes are increasingly fixed on the affairs of this world, if your instincts are increasingly favoring choosing sides so that you can better gain the whole world, I just have to ask, even if you won, would it be worth the cost to your soul? And if there's any current cultural or earth-focused issue that would cause you to be like Abram and say in response to God revealing himself to you, yeah, yeah, thanks for showing up, God, but what will you give me? For the liberals are taking over my land. Or how am I to know that I'll be protected by your mighty power? Because I'm so afraid of giving, giving or contracting COVID that I, I just don't interact with people anymore. Church, if uncertainty in the land is causing you to doubt God's promises, let's take a walk under the night sky. Let's get our eyes off of our issues, as big as they might seem, and let's see how the very God and master of the universe has a plan that can't be foiled by one nation's shenanigans. Let's remember that God alone walked through the animal halves to guarantee that this promise would be fulfilled, and let's believe God again. Not because we can force ourselves to be more faithful, not because we have the strength in and of ourselves, to manufacture faith, but because we have seen that the success of covenant relationship with God doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. Do you see it? Like the author of Genesis 15 does with Israel, we, we have to learn to identify that uncertainty and let God crush it 
under the weight of his awe-inspiring sovereignty and his faithfulness because the success of relationship with God doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. Well, there's another particularly common uncertainty for us today, the uncertainty of when life doesn't progress according to our plans. And for Abram, this looked like still not having even one child years after following God to a different land based off of the promise that he would have descendants. And for us, this can look remarkably similar. What if your family isn't starting the way that you dreamed it would? What if you suffered through a miscarriage or two or three? And now the promise of God is just looking dim and uncertain. What if you haven't found yet that spouse that your heart aches for? And now the promise of intimate relationship with God is seeming ironic. What if your job's a dead end and you feel as you're wasting precious years of your life doing something meaningless? Meanwhile, it seems everyone else around you is progressing. And the promise of reward for working as if you were working for God just seems laughable. What if death has invaded your life and has rocked your faith so hard that you don't even know if there is a God to make a promise? And church, I, I will never minimize the pain of suffering that we experience while we sojourn in this sin-soaked earth because that's real pain and there's terrible heartache here. And it's pretty important we admit that. But I love you too much not to tell you this. According to this passage, our pain, no matter how it stings, our disappointment, no matter how distressing, it can't stop God from fulfilling his purposes. It can't throw off the plan of a God who called one man out of the raging nations, gave that one man descendants when it was impossible for him to have them, gave him a land that he could never have occupied and build, make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth through his offspring. It, our pain simply cannot get in the way of God's walk through the animal halves alone. And so it's powerless to halt the success of our covenant relationship with God. Because the success of covenant relationship with God doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend on the presence or the absence of our pain. It depends totally on God alone. There's one last thing I want to communicate today from this passage. One last application. There's really one call to action we see from Genesis 15. The success of that call is seen in verse 6. And Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. We need to believe God more today than we did when we got here. We need to develop our faith. If we don't, we won't actually go out from here and get the work done that God has for us still to do. But I do have some bad news. We have unfortunately made a lifetime habit of being pretty bad at believing God. Indeed, by nature and by choice, before God intervened in our lives, we wanted nothing to do with him. Rather than believe God, we raged against him. Rather than take him at his word, we rejected his word and sought for anything and everything to worship 
particularly ourselves. In fact, all of the uncertainties we've been talking about all morning, they all kind of boil down to one thing, don't they? Our uncertainty is born when our self-worship is hampered. And with an inherited human nature that bent, that hostile to God, why should it surprise us that we still find it hard sometimes to progress in our faith, to mature in belief, to grow in our capacity to believe God? Look, if God hadn't intervened on our behalf, we wouldn't believe God. And if we look closely at our passage today, I submit that if God doesn't keep intervening, we won't progress in our belief. So just like Abram needed God to intervene, to reassure him before verse 6 became true of him, so we need God to intervene. In church, he has. God himself came down from heaven in human flesh. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. This God-man was the perfect fulfillment of all the promises that we're reading about in Genesis. This Jesus was the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God who was despised, rejected, and cursed for us. Many hundreds of years before Jesus came, God set a precedent with Abram. He walked through the animal halves of a covenant ritual alone. And in doing this, it was as if he was saying, I will pay the price if this relationship should fail. I will suffer the curse of death should either of us in this relationship prove unfaithful. And then hundreds of years later, he did the same thing again with echoing effects for all the nations of the earth. Through Abram came a blessing for the whole world indeed. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the sacrifice that set up a new covenant ritual. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree, suffering the curse of our faithlessness for God, or, or before God, on our behalf. And once again, God walked through the animal halves alone for us, that we might be in a covenant relationship with him based on the blood of his own son. When we were faithless, God was faithful. And in the establishment of that covenant, as the blood of Jesus was shed on that cross, Jesus' righteousness was conferred to us. It was counted to us. And so now it can be true of us that we believed God, and it was counted to us as righteousness. Church, the success of covenant relationship with God never depended on us. It couldn't have. We weren't faithful enough. But God is more than faithful enough for us all. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, how could we ever get any more certainty? Christ defeated death. He can defeat our uncertainty. Christ reigns now in heaven. Jesus' heart is beating right now, and he has promised to make all things new. So, because of God's awe-inspiring, millennia-spanning pattern of intervention, we need to go out from here and believe God with newfound maturation of faith. Because the success of covenant relationship with God totally depends on him. Let's pray. These are pretty amazing words, Lord. Pretty amazing text. And there's a lot that we have to learn from it. And I pray that you would make our hearts increasingly fertile soil for your word to bear fruit. 
And as we turn our attention to responding in faith and participating in one of the new covenant rituals, I pray that we would see the wondrous mystery of the Son of God shedding his own blood to suffer a curse on our behalf, walking through the animal halves, as it were, alone to secure for us a very certain future. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.